Cause we got the alternative energy Unnecular free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Nuclear weapons are the most destructive weapon ever invented They have the capacity to end life on Earth. They threaten the utter destruction. They threaten long-lived waste. And they have frightening health and environmental harm consequences in their use, but also in their manufacture and their testing. So these weapons are um, a real problem in the world. And they have become a real problem in our politic as well. So they've become very linked to a toxic, militarised masculinity. The treaty, by contrast, represents a much more democratic approach to this existential question. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show. I'm Michaela and today... As part of 3CR's 16 Days of Action on Gender-Based Violence, I'll be joined by Dimity Hawkins and Marian Hansen to talk about nuclear weapons, gender, and the feminist Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that was introduced by the United Nations in 2017 and that will finally see nuclear weapons made illegal under international law on the 22nd of January 2021. First up, we're joined by Marianne Hansen, who has been teaching at the University of Queensland for over 25 years in the area of international politics. She has been specialising in weapons control and is also a board member of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. The issue with nuclear weapons uh, as it relates to gender-based violence is that right from the very start, women have not been involved or consulted in nuclear weapons policies. And if we think about it, these policies, the decision to acquire nuclear weapons, Um, the decision to deploy them and threaten to use them, these decisions have been taken almost exclusively by men since 1945. And they are decisions which impact the lives of every one of us on the planet. Um, You would think that such an existential uh, threat as nuclear weapons would require far, far more input from a much greater range of actors than the kinds of uh, elite security specialists, almost invariably men behind the scenes who wield extraordinary amounts of power in determining uh, structures and policies, working with governments, So I think that's a fundamental problem right from the start. Women are not represented or barely represented. Uh, Women have not been part of the the equation, really. 
important thing about this treaty and indeed the process to get this treaty is that it has been a democratic exercise. It has actually been a process that has involved a much, much larger number of states than the mere nine nuclear weapon states, only nine out of 195 or so states in the world have nuclear weapons. And of course, involved in that process is not just the non-nuclear weapon states, but civil society. And within civil society, as well as within the non-nuclear weapon states, we've seen terrific input from women, from women's groups, from uh, diplomats, from uh, non-governmental agencies. So women's voices have been an important part of putting this treaty together. And unlike the nuclear uh, order that we have in the world at the moment, which is dominated by a few states um, and which has really been constructed by a very, very few individual male members of society, governments and, and security elites, the treaty, by contrast, represents a much more democratic approach to this existential question. And after all, if the use of nuclear weapons threatens or has the potential to threaten everybody on this planet, then surely this is a decision that should be affected by a broad range of voices. And that is really where the treaty has been uh, a, a really important step. Now, having said that, will the treaty make a difference? Can that more democratic uh, series of voices around the world, including women's voices, can that make a difference to the nine nuclear weapon states? The answer is that over the long term, I believe it can but it's not something that is going to have an overnight effect. We know, for example, that the nine nuclear weapon states have said they're not going to sign the treaty, uh, and some of their major allies have said we're not going to sign the treaty. The, the issue is this. Once you stigmatize a weapon and you clearly delegitimize it in international law, which is what is going to happen in January, then the, the shoe is on the other foot, if you like. It's the nuclear weapon states who will be answerable, if you like, to the rest of the world for their policies. And there will be enormous pressure placed on them, moral pressure, financial pressures, divestment strategies, etc., etc., to... Uh, to change their status, to move towards a world free of nuclear weapons. So we don't, we cannot predict exactly how that process will unfold um, or whether the treaty will be successful, but it, it certainly is not going to have uh, an overnight effect. 
Having said all that, I think that the process involved in getting the treaty has been really important. If you've sort of seen any of the scenes where it was adopted by the United Nations in 2017, um, civil society was present, a large number of non-nuclear states, uh, Elaine White Gomez from Costa Rica, the senior uh, diplomat sort of overseeing the treaty. You know, this was something that, if you like, stood up to the the power wielded by a small group of sort of so-called security specialists, elites, uh, who really have the power of life and death in their hands. And so that's been challenged. Nuclear weapons are, if you like, the well, they are the most destructive weapon ever invented. Um, they have the capacity to end life on Earth. Um, they have the, and not just human life, but life in general. These are, if you like, the ultimately destructive weapons of annihilation. Now, if we think about international security, if we think about how we live on this planet and how we interact with other people, with other states, there's a range of options available for how we can address conflict and how we can manage conflict. And that that range includes things like diplomacy, sanctions, multilateral diplomacy, um, you know, a, a whole range of activities that, that can and should be undertaken. And for the most part, since 1945, that is what has actually happened. We've seen the incidence of war between states uh, lowered considerably and even the incidence of warfare within states has also lessened greatly. And a lot of that is thanks to efforts made uh, in the United Nations and elsewhere for people to sit down and devise alternatives to a simple race for utter annihilation. Now, from a feminist point of view, Again, the, the, the sort of rush to, to press the button, we've seen statements made by nuclear leaders, ridiculous things like, my button is bigger than yours. Um, we've seen very sort of aggressive styles of, of posturing. And nuclear deterrence itself is ultimately deeply, deeply aggressive. It, it not just threatens, it promises to use nuclear weapons to destroy utterly somebody else's populations. Right? And remember, nuclear weapons are they're not aimed at military forces. They are aimed at civilians. They're aimed at cities and towns. And so that, that kind of sort of all-or-nothing approach is, is not just undemocratic, it's deeply, deeply dangerous as well. 
And for those who think that nuclear deterrence has actually uh, allowed us to live in peace, well, nuclear deterrence will not always last. In fact, we've seen many examples where nuclear deterrence almost failed numerous times, either by accident or by design, we have come very close to a nuclear war erupting. And a lot of people aren't aware of this. So given that, you know, policies of nuclear deterrence promise slaughter on a widespread scale without the opportunity really to to consider things like human error, consider the possibilities for dialogue, diplomacy, conciliation. Uh, this is an extremist ideology, and it is very much one that has been perpetrated by a small group of male politicians and policy advisors. I guess I would also say that the the treaty, which will enter into force next month, pays attention to the fact that nuclear weapons uh, and nuclear testing and nuclear policies in general threaten women more than they do men. So the, the effects on women... Uh, on their reproductive health, etc., the effects of radiation, uh, it has been shown to impact women and girls disproportionately. And the treaty, I think, recognizing that is a really important step. The treaty also asks that those states which have contaminated parts of the planet by conducting more than 2,000 nuclear weapon tests over the past uh, 60, 70 years or so, 75 years, that those states go in to clean up the mess that they have made. So I think the treaty is its a much more democratic process. It has allowed for the voices of a greater range of actors, including very strong women's voices, um, and it acknowledges the problems that have been inherent in what has really been a very male-dominated exercise. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across the country thanks to the Community Radio Network. We just heard from Marianne Hansen, and next up we have Dimity Hawkins. She is one of the co-founders of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, a grassroots movement that began here in Melbourne and was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize for their work to draw attention to the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of any use of nuclear weapons and for its groundbreaking efforts to achieve a treaty-based prohibition of such weapons. Nuclear weapons are one of those huge, um, seemingly, have been one of those huge, seemingly intractable um, issues in the international realm for the last 75 years since they were first used. And they have been wrongly attributed to strength and power, often attributed to a sort of toxic, militaristic, 
patriarchy and um, and masculinity. They threaten the utter destruction. They threaten long-lived waste, and they f- have frightening health and environmental harm consequences in their use, but also in their manufacture and in their testing. So these weapons are um, a real problem in the world, and they have become a real problem in our politic as well. So they've become very linked to a toxic, militarized masculinity that has invaded our politics and has talked about um, these weapons being part of our security, these weapons being part of strength, but they're not strength. It's cowardice from a distance, it's bullying, and it's an abuse on a global scale to threaten these kinds of weapons against people. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, yeah, I think that gendered nature of the discourse around state and national security supports that continued existence. Absolutely, yeah. So the, the, the very much the... Um, you know, we see we see it in the language that is deployed by nuclear weapon states. So, for example, when in 1988 um, India tested their nuclear weapons, they one of their nationalist leaders said, "You know, we had to prove that we were not eunuchs." You know, we talk about um, the ways in which the first nuclear bombs to be used against um, in in war in Japan in 1945. They were named Little Boy and Fat Man. We hear it in the language around non-proliferation where certain states say that they are being emasculated because they're not allowed to own nuclear weapons. You know, there's lots of ways in which this becomes very gendered in the way that people talk about nuclear weapons. And it also constructs masculinities that are reinforcing of strong patriarchal realist norms that speak of conflict being an inevitable part of power politics. They justify the expenditure on weapons over real human security needs because they become so immersed into the um, ideas of, of national security or extended security, so extended um, nuclear deterrence, for example, that that we are putting aside, we're, we're expending enormous amounts of money on these terrible weapons that do terrible harm instead of expending it on the real needs of the community, on the real needs of the citizenry around the world. So it, it does, it really does become entrenched into these things and it really needs to be challenged and it has been very challenged. None of this is particularly new either, Michaela. Like this is one of the things that I, I keep going back to over and over again in my head. You know, so if you think about 1915, middle of the First World War, um, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom met for the first time in The Hague. These women came from all over the world, including from Australia. 1,300 women gathered in The Hague in Europe during that First World War to talk about these things. And what they discovered in talking together was this link between states' understandings of militarism and masculinity and and security being linked to militarism. And they started challenge that in 1915. So we're we're not we're not being radical when we talk about these things. These things have been talked about for over a hundred years. Um, really clearly. But what is changing is some of the understanding, some of the language that's been put around this 
both within the United Nations but within um, many countries now talking about feminist policies, feminist security policies and those sorts of things. Um, in the United Nations 20 years ago, there was the um, Security Council Resolution 1325, which reaffirmed the importance of the role of women in um, pre prevention and resolution of conflicts. And it also recognised the disproportionate impact of conflicts on women and girls in particular. So you see these kinds of shifts that started taking place over 100 years ago, again 20 years ago, and now with something like the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, where we see again built into this new international instrument an understanding of the disproportionate impact of nuclear weapons on women and girls, for example, and a whole bunch of other things. Can you tell us a little bit more about those disproportionate impacts? Yeah, so, well, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, as, as many of your listeners probably already know, um, you know, it went through a, a large negotiation process. It went through a time in the lead up to the negotiations of that treaty. There were many international, four international um, conferences of states where they sought out information about the, the actual um, harm that might be caused by the use of nuclear weapons. These were called the humanitarian conferences. And in those, they were seeking information about what the reality of the use of nuclear weapons were. What would happen if these weapons were used again? And in fact, how are they being used in their very manufacturing and their maintenance and so forth? One of the things that they came out with was a very clear understanding a scientific understanding that nuclear weapons disproportionately impact um, on women and girls. And they do this particularly as a result of ionizing radiation. So people like Tillman Ruff, who works with us in ICANN, of course, um, you know, and, and other good doctors around the world through IPPNW and here in Australia through the Medical Association for Prevention of War, have really researched and done a lot of work into those kinds of impacts on women and girls in particular and ionising radiation. But in addition to that, like the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons talks very specifically about the importance of the full participation of women and men in promoting and attaining a sustainable peace and the importance of having women in uh, nuclear disarmament fora and, and discussions and infrastructure so that we can actually see a progression of these kinds of politics. So those things are, are really exciting and important. I think actually if you look through the history of the global history and the Australian history and certainly our Pacific regional history, you will find that women have been absolutely intricately and, you know, um, leaders of this movement for the whole time that this movement has been happening. We have seen women leading this movement from a, a range of different perspectives over time. Certainly um, here for the lead up to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, it was um, uh, ICANN Australia had a real focus on getting those voices of Indigenous community survivors, um, those, those groups to sort of be, be vocal and visible within the campaign from here in Australia, but from around the Pacific as well, as I said, and, and really highlighting those voices of the Baksha as well. 
also a vet of veterans of nuclear testing as well, because the military veterans were often victimized in this process as well. So I guess, um, you know, the inclusion of that we see in the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, we see the inclusion of victims' assistance and environmental remediation. And we see that as central to humanitarian law and to humanitarian disarmament. But we also see that as absolutely, you know, immersed in feminist peace principles as well. That sort of idea of that holistic, not just stopping these weapons, but also holding to account and trying to remediate as much as we can from these weapons and sort of sort of seeing it in that very holistic style is a really important principle. We also see that the elimination of nuclear weapons is not merely about limiting those weapons or making it about non-proliferation. We want to see these weapons get to zero. We want to be seeing this being unequivocal and clear. So bringing those voices, those those voices of those who are disproportionately impacted by nuclear weapons, which includes indigenous communities, which includes Kabakusha, those communities that had testing committed against them all around the Pacific, all around here in Australia, but all around the world as well. Those voices are really central to a feminist understanding of, um, of banning these weapons. And we're still working towards getting the Australian government to sign on and hopefully eventually ratify uh, the treaty. Do you think at the governmental level are there enough women and gender non-conforming people involved in those negotiations and is that something that is being requested? Well, that's a very good question, actually, Michaela. Um, myself, personally, I, I have not been in Canberra. I mean, none of us have been in Canberra, right, this year. <laughs> it's been one of those years. Um, but I have not been involved personally in the in the Canberra negotiations with, with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, who have the portfolio um, regarding this treaty at the moment. But certainly one of the things that ICANN Australia has done recently is try to combat some of their more negative takes that that DFAT have put out in the world on the treaty. They've got some some very um, negative and very limited understandings on their website, for example, about how the treaty works. So ICANN Australia just this week have launched a new um, information pamphlet about that. I guess how DFAT have constructed their teams is not something I'm familiar with at the moment. But what I would say is that within Parliament, we see enormous numbers of parliamentarians who are engaging on this issue, increasing numbers of parliamentarians as well. We've got a cross-party parliamentary friendship group for the treaty, and that is really engaging on discussions and ideas around how to support getting this treaty into the Australian Parliament. So there's lots of different ways in which people are coming at this. Do we have a feminist foreign policy? No, not yet. We don't here in Australia. But there is a lot of discussion happening around that, uh, both academically but in the political realm as well. And maybe we'll see some of that develop here in Australia as we have in other countries like Sweden, etc. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how this goes. We'll see how this goes in coming times. It's all a work in progress, as all of these things are. But I think, um, I think that, 
you know, from my personal perspective, my feminism is that all people have worth and that we are responsible to one another and to our planet. And that security is about equity and care for the world. And nuclear weapons in that sense have always been immoral and unconscionable, but they're actually going to be illegal as of the 22nd of January next year. So we will see an inevitable engagement around these kinds of issues with our government, whether they like it or not. This is a global conversation and we will see this starting to evolve. We'll see there has to be engagement on these issues. And I'm really looking forward to that. We just heard from Dimity Hawkins. Today's show has been a part of 3CR's 16 Days of Action on Gender-Based Violence. And if you want to check out more of the programs that are involved with this special broadcast, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash 16 Days of Action. To find out more about the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, go to icanw.org.au. Thanks so much to Dimity and Marianne for joining us on the show today and thanks to the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne for their ongoing support. The Radioactive Show was produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Melbourne and is broadcast nationally Thanks to the Community Radio Network. Thanks for tuning in and join us again next week for more news and views on nuclear peace and energy issues. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.